0: Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Try Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost, built for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, incredible load times, and 24-7 WordPress priority support, your sites will be lightning fast with global reach. And with Bluehost Cloud, your sites can handle surges in traffic no matter how big. Plus, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. Get started now at Bluehost.com.
1: Before investing, carefully consider the fund's objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in the full or summary prospectus at GlobalXETFs.com. Read carefully. Distributed by SEI Investments Distribution Co. Hello and welcome to the Battleground Podcast Big Interview with me, Patrick Bishop. I'm flying solo this week. My guest today is Francis Scar. Now, Francis belongs to the BBC's monitoring unit, which tracks global media. He's part of the Russia team and they analyze Russian TV and social media. He lived in Moscow for years before being forced to leave after Russia's full-scale invasion last year. Uh, He specializes in the TV political talk shows that dominate the Russian schedules. This is what Francis told me. Hello, Francis. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, We're very grateful to you for coming on. This is a subject that fascinates a lot of our listeners. But before we launch into the Russian side of things, just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to do what you do.
0: Uh, hi, Patrick. Well, I studied languages at university. I grew up always loving languages as, as a, as a schoolboy, and I have a German grandmother uh, and had the option of starting Russian from scratch. Became very quickly enamoured with the language. Spent a year studying in the city of uh, Yekaterinburg in the, the Ural Mountains and left university five years ago now and found a job with a part of the BBC I had previously not heard of, BBC Monitoring, which is where I still work. And BBC Monitoring was set up in the Second World War to monitor well, Nazi Germany and fascist Italy through their radio broadcasts primarily. So essentially that the British government knew what those governments were telling their people. And as the geopolitical landscape shifted after the end of the Second World War, the focus of BBC monitoring very much shifted as well towards the Soviet Union. And if we fast forward to 2023, BBC monitoring's scope is is much broader. I'm one of a few hundred people across the, the globe. Our main office is in London, but we also have bureau in in places as uh, Tashkent, Tbilisi, uh, Jerusalem, formerly in Moscow, which is where I worked for a few years until the invasion, full-scale invasion of of Ukraine last February. And we cover all kinds of um, media, really. So state media in the case of Russia, but also uh, newspapers, social media, radio. We're following independent reporting from Russia, most of which has been forced outside of Russia now, of course, because reporting on the war there in in an objective manner is um, essentially illegal now and can land you multiple years in jail. We can get into that a bit more later. But what we're essentially doing is informing our customers who broadly fall into three groups. So government customers within the, uh, the UK government, the BBC as well is informed by our reporting. And a lot of what you see on the BBC website will have been written with reference to reports that we've processed for ourselves. And there's also a variety of commercial customers. So companies working around the, the globe that would like to know more about where they're operating, um, essentially. Um, and of course, it's worth stressing that all of this is just openly available information that we're looking at. None of it is is intelligence in, in any way. It's all just, it's it's there on the internet. It's it's there in print or on uh, via broadcast.
1: Yeah, of course, it does have a very uh, significant effect on, on uh, the shaping of our thinking and presumably our policy as a result of that. Okay. Just explain to us about the media landscape of Russia. What's on offer these days and who watches what?
0: Well, the media landscape in Russia has become increasingly narrow since the uh, full scale invasion last year. If you look at the bulk of the Russian population, what they are watching is uh, state TV. There's one pollster in Russia called the Levada Center, which is regarded as being more or less independent from the Kremlin. And they say that about two thirds of Russians are getting most of their information from state TV. If you look at other types of media, there are newspapers which are broadly uh, in support of of the Kremlin position but are less jingoistic generally and less aggressive in their kind of their anti-westernism sometimes you will see kind of quite objective reporting on the state of the economy in uh, regards to specific issues such as labor shortages perhaps or things like population decline basically topics that the Kremlin wouldn't really advertised to the wider population through its kind of its more preferred media outlets. You also have um, a number of independent websites in Russia. These sort of sprung up in the last maybe 10 years or so, and have done some really important work on uncovering corruption and um, abuse of power by the Russian authorities. But because of laws passed since the start of the invasion, it's it's essentially become impossible for them to operate within the country, and so almost all of their reporting is done from outside the country now. M- many Russian journalists are living in places like um, Latvia or Georgia. Dojd, which is uh, rain in English, um, was the main independent Russian TV channel that was forced off the kind of traditional. Uh, airwaves some time ago but they continue to broadcast over YouTube and online and they are now mainly operating from um, the, the Netherlands.
1: Did they go as a result of the war or were they forced out before the war?
0: That was after the war so what happened in the wake of the invasion was the Russian parliament and the Duma forced through um, a couple of draconian laws which I've I've sort of mentioned in general which one of them was so called a law against discrediting the armed forces, and the other, in, in inverted commas, of course, and uh, the other one was um, spreading fakes about the special military operation. And both of these laws eff- effectively meant that it's impossible to report on the war and on, well, pretty much any aspect of it without taking the approach that the Kremlin is taking. So any other version of events is essentially illegal. And uh, many of these independent outlets sort of saw that as their warning to get out of the country. Others left it a bit too late. And there are journalists within the country who are now um, in jail. There are also a couple of quite prominent opposition politicians, one in particular Is called Ilya Yashin. He was a counselor in Moscow but had a a very prominent um, position on social media. And he was jailed for eight or nine years, I can't remember exactly, for talking about the atrocities in Butcher near Kiev on his uh, YouTube channel.
1: You do, uh, for us, you get these sort of quasi independent voices, don't you? Coming from the nationalist camp, you know, the mill bloggers, do they face the same kind of difficulties as someone who's criticising the Kremlin and the the military establishment from the other side of the argument, if you like?
0: I think they do. But that's a that's a much more recent phenomenon, because until really the last few months, the Kremlin has been so fixated on ensuring that there's no criticism coming from the kind of more democratic, more liberal side of the political landscape. And has been prepared to cut a lot more slack for the kind of nationalist voices. These are people who are, you know, very much supportive of the war. And if they're if they're criticizing the Kremlin, they're saying that the Kremlin is is not being tough enough. That it's not doing enough in Ukraine, and it's kind of really making this war last longer than it needs to because they're not prepared to use the full um, kind of arsenal at Russia's Russia's disposal. In the last few months, though, we've seen um, prominently. Figures like Igor Gierkin, who's known as Strelkov, he's wanted by The the Hague um, for his his role in in shooting down the MH17 airliner in in 2014. And um, he is now um, remanded in custody pending trial for his, essentially his criticism of President Putin. There are other figures as well, less prominent, who have fallen foul of this um i think i think in many ways you could argue that the yevgeny prigozhin his apparent assassination um however you want to you know describe what happened to him in that plane crash was in many ways um also part of the same equation this was criticism coming from um from the the nationalist side of of russian kind of uh, political opinion and this is something that the kremlin has been forced to uh, react to in a way that it didn't expect to um, by all accounts, at the the start of this war.
1: Now, you you said something very interesting about the fact that two thirds of the population get their information. That prime source of information is from state media, state TV. I assume that is mainly. Can you quantify in any sort of meaningful way how many of them actually believe what they're hearing, or is it just the TV's on in the corner and uh, it's just a bit of sort of you know the ambient noise of everyday life?
0: This is, a, of course, a difficult one, um, especially in Russia now when people are afraid of saying what they really think to pollsters. This Lavada Center that I mentioned, the, the kind of main independent pollster that is left in Russia, they are uh, notoriously faced by this problem of people just refusing to answer their questions when they carry out these telephone polls.
1: Sorry, Francis, just can you expand a little bit about the levada said because we quote it sometimes and hmm. you know it's there's a little tagline that says oh you know it's credible but just very briefly how, how are they able to operate you know given that um, if they're actually doing their job properly then it's um potentially there's going to be innate criticism in there of the kremlin that, tell us a little what you know about levada
0: well they were set up in the the 90s i believe as a sort of breakaway holster from the main state organization which is called uh, Vtion, that stands for the um, All-Russian Public Opinion Centre. Yeah, so they broke away from the main Russian state pollster. There's um, a second state pollster as well. And they quickly gained this reputation for being a pollster in the kind of sense that we in the West would see pollsters being um, organisations tasked with, ta- all, tasking themselves with the job of really doing research into public opinion on, on all kinds of issues. So ahead of elections, uh, what people think of politicians, but also on, on social issues, and what kind of the public reaction to certain big developments in the news is. And they have been targeted by the Russian authorities. They've been labeled as a foreign agent. this kind of designation which makes things more difficult for entities uh, within Russia. It complicates uh, things like their their financing and having to report to the authorities and all on on where all their money comes from. Um, and it can lead to kind of even harsher restrictions, uh, meaning that they would um, essentially have to have to shut down operations. Um, But the point being that the Levada Centre is kind of the only fairly objective source of public opinion that we have regarding Russia nowadays. But then their ability to capture public opinion is, of course, made much more difficult by the various restrictive laws that have been put in place by the Russian authorities, and ultimately frighten people Uh, away from telling the truth when they are asked what they think about certain um, issues. So we have to take, even with what they are producing, everything has to be taken with with a pinch of salt, um, unfortunately.
1: Yeah, so what I was asking was to what extent is state media regarded as credible? Do they give any indication of how much of this is actually swallowed whole, if you like, by the consumers?
0: I think, well... I haven't seen any polling specifically to that end, but any sort of anecdotal evidence of conversations with Russians that that anyone living in Russia or has lived in Russia can produce will tell you that lots of Russians, even if they don't believe some of the more outlandish claims that Russian state TV comes out with the various conspiracy theories, they do believe a lot of the underlying messages, which is. Really, that Russia is is a victim and has been for for decades, um, and that the West has put pressure on Russia and forced it to act in this way. And so, there are various things that the, the Russian state TV will come out with very, uh, very recently after these reports of UK-supplied Storm Shadow missiles, for example, being uh, employed by the Ukrainians to target Russian vessels in in the Sevastopol, this port in Crimea, Russian. State TV was claiming that Volodymyr Zelensky was an agent of MI6 and that the British were effectively controlling everything that um, every decision that he was making, that it was taken in close coordination. Of course, uh, Zelensky is is talking to his his allies in the West, but that that's not to say that he's controlled by MI6. And this is really it, it, it's sort of a long-standing kind of maybe not conspiracy theory as such, but long-standing. Prejudice that is within within Russian opinion that the UK is very devious and is really a, a great power that thanks to its intelligence operations and I think this goes back to the nineteenth century. So it's it's not just someone watching too many James Bond films, for example. So there are kind of there are deeper convictions and, and preconceptions that the Russians have that mean that they they buy a lot of what they're told on state media, um, even if they don't believe absolutely everything. I mean, we just have to go back to the poisoning of Sergei Skripal, for example, and remember Margarita Simonyan, the head of RT, um, organising an interview with these two suspects, the the GRU military intelligence operatives who were accused by the UK of uh, trying to kill Sergei Skripal, and them claiming that they were tourists who had gone to Salisbury to see the, the cathedral. And it seems unlikely that Russians are, are buying this wholesale but I think they, they buy enough of it for it to be um, effective uh, essentially.
1: When you were living in Russia did you kind of form the impression that people kind of believe the, these deep-rooted misconceptions or let's call them what they are lies? Did you find in your dealings with ordinary Russians that there was a sort of you know, as you, you as a Brit that, that you were somehow kind of from a hostile tradition, shall we say?
0: Well, I had sort of two distinct groups of friends when I was in Russia. I had, I had students who were sort of similar age to me, um, who were very much of a, a kind of pro-democratic, um, anti-Putin mindset. But I also knew a group of Russians through a family that I'd spent some time with who were um, in their their middle-aged or older, and, and many of them, were able to engage with me as a friend on a personal level, but I did feel that there was this strong sense of hostility towards the UK and this kind of constant mockery of Western politicians, for example, and this sense that Putin was a, a genuine statesman who who was there, um, you know, for, for for years, whereas the British governments were coming and going and like they they couldn't remember who was in charge of the country, talking about sort of Tony Blair 15 years after he had left office, that kind of thing. So I think it is something that is, is quite present. Um, we know how President Putin has, has used history or, or his manipulation of it in justifying his, his invasion of Ukraine. And this is something you see all the time in the state media. I mean, there was, uh, there's a very prominent newsreader in Russia called Dmitry Kiselyov. He has a three hour long program every Sunday night, uh, which um, ostensibly reviews the the news um, that week. And it wasn't that long ago that he was he was claiming that the whole of the West had ganged up on Russia at Stalingrad. This was uh, the the anniversary of, of the liberation of the city. So rather than describing this as a Soviet um battle against Nazi Germany, he was speaking of, of the whole West ganging up on Russia and with the obvious intention of, of trying to portray the current war in in those kind of terms. And this sense of victimhood, I think, is is really, it's, it shouldn't be underestimated. It's really quite powerful in, in terms of how it uh, is used to control public opinion in Russia.
1: Yeah, that's fascinating. Uh, we could talk, uh, we could have an entire different program about the memory of the Second World War and how it's presented inside Russia, which we might actually do one day because I think, I think it sounds like you, you'd be able to talk about it very well. So clearly no residual gratitude for the Arctic convoys if you're just talking about the Brits or all the aid that flowed in from via Persia as was uh, from the other side from the Americas. But anyway, that's a, a separate topic. But I think that's, that really is a um, lightning observation. Well, that was very illuminating. I learned a lot from that. Do join us in part two, for the rest of the interview with Francisca. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. Welcome back. This is what Francis told me next. Can we move on to um, the social media side of things now, Francis? I think when we're talking about conventional media, that most of the audience is is on the kind of older end of the age spectrum. But is that the case with social media? Is it you know weighted heavily towards the young, the the people who use it, or is it more widespread than that?
0: I think it is weighted fairly heavily towards young people. But that's not to say that all of the kind of content on social media is anti Putin and anti Kremlin. It's quite a complicated picture. So on the one hand, we've seen since the start of the war, the Kremlin really trying to crack down on social media, sort of seeing it as a kind of platform, a set of platforms that can't be controlled in the same way that the traditional state media can. So, for example, the likes of Facebook and Instagram and Twitter are to one or one extent or another banned um, in the country at the moment. However, you do have, especially on Telegram, this other very popular platform in Russia, we've seen this kind of burgeoning of um, pro-war accounts. And, And many of these kind of nationalist bloggers and these these war correspondents who have been reporting on on the war in in real time and kind of supplying Russians with a lot of the really jingoistic rhetoric about the war that that is on social media rather than uh, necessarily um other types of media and so that in that sense it is it's a landscape which cannot be seen as purely against the Kremlin. And in many ways, I think the Kremlin is happy to see that kind of development of um, a pro-war segment of the internet, as long as it doesn't come back to bite it, which which has happened on on several occasions throughout this war. Yevgeny Prigozhin, for example, was mainly using Telegram to put out his messages when he was criticising the the Defence Minister Sergei Shoigu and, and Valery Gerasim of the Chief of the General Staff. Um, and there are also various other military bloggers and war correspondents using Telegram to to criticise the, the waging of the war. So people who are, again, feel that the war is not being conducted in a kind of competent manner and that uh, Russia is is not on top in the way that it should be, and these are kind of sentiments that you wouldn't get on state TV, for example, which offers this much more kind of varnished reality to to its viewers. So, yeah, in in short, this is this is quite a it's a quite a complicated landscape, and the likes of Telegram, for example, are not they're not censored. So you have all kinds of views on there. You you have the likes of oppos- former opposition politicians in Russia using it, but you also have many of these very aggressively anti-Western, anti-Ukrainian voices as well.
1: Why have they allowed that degree of freedom? Is it like a sort of safety valve thing that there needs to be some outlet, some place where people can vent their feelings, be they pro or be they anti?
0: I think to an extent, there's the argument that the Russian authorities are simply not as effective at suppressing this kind of stuff as the likes of the Chinese authorities. I mean... There were actually attempts in the past to control Telegram. There was a, a long-running dispute with the authorities about Telegram needing to hand over the um encryption keys. Basically, this was the authorities saying they wanted to be able to see what was being said on Telegram in the private messages. I think it was linked to a terrorism bombing on the St Petersburg metro and in the wake of this the authorities claimed this was several years ago. The authorities claimed that they needed control of Telegram so that they could um, conduct a proper investigation of what had happened. And Telegram simply refused. And while the Russian authorities ostensibly banned it for several years, most people continued using it, even people uh, within the authorities, the likes of Margarita Simonyan, for example, the head of RT, was still quite active on Telegram over this entire period. Um, And it became increasingly sort of obvious that this ban was was not effective um, and so i think there's a degree of the russian authorities simply not having the wherewithal to control social media in this way and even if we look at the the western social media platforms such as facebook or instagram or twitter they're they're still very easy to access in russia if you if you just have a bit of technical know-how and can download um a vpn onto your phone or onto your whatever other device and you can access these these platforms. So it would be wrong to say that they've simply been, you know, the Russians have simply been cut off from, from the kind of the rest of the Internet.
1: What are the consequences if you are found to be spreading a message that the Kremlin don't like? What, what would actually happen to you?
0: Well, under these laws that were passed uh, just after the invasion, you can be fined initially for quote unquote, uh, discrediting the armed forces or spreading fakes about the special military operation. Um, But if you're found of doing it uh, a second time, you can face time in jail up to about 15 years, I think, depending on the uh, exact offence. This does seem to have been used much more liberally with regards to the kind of democratic opposition in Russia than it has been with regards to the nationalist, um, the nationalist sort of voices who are who are urging the the Kremlin to fight a, a tougher war in Ukraine, so there are things that have been said, kind of criticism of the Russian Defence Ministry, for example, that ostensibly should have landed these people with hefty convictions, but they managed to escape from them. Um, but if you look at the kind of democratic voices, journalists within Russia. Um, There are local journalists in Siberia or even people who have just posted anti-war messages on their on their social media accounts or comments on on someone else's um, post. Then they have found themselves jailed. So this is it's not just a threat. This is a a reality that, that Russians are very much facing at the moment.
1: Now, Francis, this is a difficult one. But if you could try and answer as best you can, from what you've seen, Do you detect any change in the mood of Russian public opinion between February 2022 and now? Is there any kind of shift that you can detect either for or against the war?
0: I think if there has been a shift, it's simply that more people are choosing to switch off from the war and from the media coverage of it. This is, I think, quite a a popular Quite a widespread assessment of the place that Russian society finds itself in now. That there are constituencies on either end of the spectrum who are very much against the war or for the war, but increasingly so, Russians um, are becoming tired of it. Not necessarily so much so that they they want to protest against the authorities, but they are choosing to avoid the news and pretend, to the extent that they can, that things aren't going to affect them. And I think in certain parts of Russia, in the kind of wealthier cities, this is probably more possible um, because they've been less affected by the mobilization, for example. I'm not sure it's so possible in out in, in, in the sticks, in places in Siberia or the Caucasus, for example, where where large numbers of young men have, have signed up even or have been mobilized to go and fight in Ukraine.
1: Now, this is a question we often get from listeners. Francis. They often say, is there anything we can do in the West to actually counterbalance that uh, view that's being propagated by uh, Russian state media and try and do something to actually uh, put the, the West's point of view in a sort of you know cogent and credible way? I mean, there's a long history of this, of course, as, as you were referencing earlier, Radio Free Europe, et cetera. Can you see any way where we could actually try and redress Uh, The information balance a bit?
0: I think this is a very difficult one, because anything that is said by the West is instantly twisted by the Russian authorities. Just to give you an example, when Boris Johnson was still um, the Prime Minister of of the UK, he sent out a message uh, when he actually spoke in Russian, telling Russians that they should install VPNs on their devices so that they could then look at objective News coverage of of what was happening rather than consuming the narrative that the Russian state wanted them to receive. And this was shown across Russian state TV and simply ridiculed. And there was one channel that actually had this big red stamp saying fake superimposed on Boris Johnson's face, as if to say that this was someone who was lying to them and someone who was trying to deceive them. I think it's very it's quite a convenient emotion to, to believe that you're somehow right and that everyone is against you. And there's only a certain number of people in Russia who are going to be able to see through that and to be able to look at what their their government and, and what their army are doing and, and to criticise it. And I think that those people would already have turned against their government, turning the people who are neutral or who are in favour of the government, I think is it's it's an almost impossible task. And that sort of battle is going to be won, um, I think, elsewhere, whether that's on the battlefield or whether that's via the economy and sanctions. But in terms of reaching out to Russians via independent media, I think it's quite difficult to increase the target audience that you already have.
1: Francis, that was absolutely fascinating. Thank you very much for coming onto our podcast and uh, keep up the good work. It's really, I think, very, very valuable what you're doing.
0: Thank you, Patrick.
1: Well, that was really fascinating and illuminating, a topic that I know interests a lot of our listeners and I think they'll have gained a real understanding of uh, how the Russian media scene operates as a result of what we heard from Francis. If you want to find out more, Francis is on Twitter. His handle is Francis underscore Scar, S-C-A-R-R. And on that, you will find clips of Russian TV. And he's very kindly subtitled them so you can actually see the reality of what he's been talking about. Okay, I think what he said really speaks for itself. But do join us on Friday for another in-depth look at the week's events and analysis from me and Saul, and of course, answers to listeners' questions. Goodbye.